Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Greetings. Welcome to the Spotlight on IRT podcast. I'm Matt Lowry, and today we're going to cover umbrella trials. In our world, we are in a race. A race to treat patients, a race to get to market, and a race to ensure that the drug is effective. All of these combined have led to an increase in what can be described as umbrella trials. To further explain that, I've invited Carla Manuel and Rob Cascone, who have designed and implemented quite a few of these to help us understand the criteria and advantages for these types of trials. Rob, Carla, welcome. So let's jump right in. What do we mean when we say an umbrella study? What's the definition of that? Well, I would say this one. So really when we look at it, there's two types of trials, uh, which are often, they're, they're easily mistaken for each other. So we can refer to them as like these multiple trials. So we even look at umbrella trials or basket or what people will call even bucket trials. Um, now, the biggest clue for the differentiator between them is in the visual concept of each of the trials. So when we think of it this way, uh, we look at an umbrella trial, it's patients with a specific disorder. So we generally look at oncology here. Um, and we're looking at they're assigning a tr- specific treatment onto these patients, which is based on the molecular makeup or even just the genetic abnormality which we're looking for of their cancer. So we're looking for at the specific cancer type. Um, So if you think of an umbrella trial in the relation to the arms of an umbrella, these can cover a wide area. So the same as with the trial design, it allows us to test a variety of targeted drugs, but at the same time in the patients who are the most likely to benefit. So those with cancers that have like a specific molecular abnormality are targeted by the drug. So breast cancer, colorectal, gastric cancers, they're often seen in these types of umbrella trials. So similar to an umbrella, arms which are considered broken or non-viable or they're not useful anymore, you can remove them and you can replace them so the umbrella continues. You continue to do this over time. So whenever new arms become available or new results come in from existing treatment arms and those results become clear but not a viable option, you just drop them out the way. So it's that umbrella kind of visual concept which you bring into the design. What this umbrella trial is really an innovation in clinical trial design. Um, what this focuses on really is how fast and kind of the flexibility that we can do to maximize patient engagement. Um, so what Rob said, you know, again, we're really focused on one umbrella of disease. So for example, one, uh, you know, a focused uh, gene mutation. But within that um, umbrella of disease, there's going to be subtrials, you know, within that framework that we can um, test. So how do you manage then the protocol when you, when you build these umbrella trials up? Is it all under one clinical protocol or does it come about with multiple clinical protocols falling under one IRT system? Ah, so now this is one of the kind of the beauties of the basket or umbrella trials is that you only have one protocol. So all the experimental treatment arms that you're looking to compare, they're all going to be in one document. Um, so as soon as one is successful and it's going to be replaced with another arm, then you just revise the protocol. So this is really the introduction.
consideration or our first kind of time-saving consideration when it comes to an umbrella or a basket or a bucket trial. You write one protocol and then that one protocol is reviewed and approved by a regulatory body instead of the dozens of kind of phase 1B protocols that you'd have to write for the same volume of studies. Um, no. What we have to do consider is that these protocols do become quite lengthy because you have to put in all of the safety considerations, efficacy, um, toxicity, tolerability. You put all of that into one protocol at once, but you have to also then just train all of your sites and all of your monitors and your study team on one protocol. So it really makes things easy. So and in this umbrella study, it takes really the same patients under the same umbrella of disease. So for example, you know, we talked about the HR positive breast cancer. So we're looking at the same type of patients, um, and then we just qualify them into different treatment groups based on the genetic mutation. So it's just easier for us to just have one protocol, and then again, as we learn more about the uh, diseases and medical conditions, then we can, you know, these pharmaceutical companies can come up with um, a combination of treatments on how to address them. So when you start to build these studies out, what are the design considerations you have to take in place? Um, different treatment arms, uh, the cohorts, different lists. How, how does that really start to work out? Well, the first thing that you always need to consider when you talk about the design considerations is take it right back to that patient-centric viewpoint. So this is why we're building it. So I always try to ex explain to everyone I talk to about these umbrella trials, imagine the mindset of someone. They've just been diagnosed with cancer. They agree to then enter a clinical trial only to be told, sorry, you're not eligible for this treatment as it doesn't match exactly what this trial is looking for. So we need to build and have that consideration of we're going to build a system, an umbrella trial system, so the question has to become, oh, so you've got lung cancer, let's see what are the multiple options we have for you. So that then comes into your design consideration. So the first thing is you always have to consider you have to provide an option. So your standard of care chemotherapy or the best possible uh, commercial available treatment always needs to be your control option for the patient. You always need to compare to that. We don't want to ever turn a patient away with, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. Right. So in terms of the IOT design as well, um, you know, typically you'd want to build a system that's flexible enough to accommodate multiple arms. So you know, in the beginning of the protocol, you're looking at maybe three, four combinations of treatment. But you want to have to think. You want to think ahead and you know see that okay, possibly down the future we're going to have four more additional treatment arms. So you want to make sure that the system is able to accommodate those new changes or those new combinations within um, the system. Um, you know the, the protocol might tell you okay, you know you have to have 33 percent of the enrolled patients should be within the treatment arm um, and so on. But you really want to implement that flexibility because again these protocols do change as we learn more about these studies. So while you want to implement those, say, hard stops and, um, you know, caps and whatnot, but at the same time, you want to introduce some flexibility in case those things change. So the way that we anticipate the um, umbrella studies is it's going to be, you know, happening or it's going to be on until the we find a cure. Um, really, I think the, the, the best part there was just having that flexibility, not just in managing these arms, or adding, you know, these arms, but in how we actually engage the patients within the system. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things that we look at as well when we're considering how we're going to manage to build a system with the different treatment arms is that this still has to be a randomized study. So we can't just let that kind of clinical trial bias to be able to creep in purely because we're looking at offering multiple experimental arms 
to a patient all at the one time. This can't be left to a, uh, a physician's decision on which arm they want to provide. So we still need to have that clinical trial kind of balanced uh, kind of uh, bias, shall we say, to make sure that we're actually going to get proper clinical data coming out of this trial to drive those uh, analysis points at the end. Right, and to, to that point too, you know, when we build these randomization lists, we have to, again, think ahead. Um, we can't just be preparing the randomization list with what we see in the protocol. So we want to add more entries or, you know, functionality that will accommodate possibly four more or five more experimental arms or combination of treatment arms down in the future. So, so that way, when the protocol is amended, amended and a new treatment arm is introduced, your randomization list is already covered, and you already know that you already have entries to support this new arm. So as you go through this, I'm hearing you design it up front, you have these arms. Do you build in extra arms as kind of placeholders? Should mid-study there comes an amendment that says, you know what, we want to also add this in now? Yeah, so definitely, this is one of the biggest points about uh, the umbrella trials, is that we have to consider the concept of called adaptive trial design. So this is where the IRT needs to keep up with the kind of the forward-thinking development that the clinical world is now putting in place. The clinical trial market is moving so quick, and the technology and the mindset has almost been lagging behind. So we need to think, and we need to come up to that same point. Now what we have to think of is that a lot of the clinical trials will provide one treatment arm as a choice of an experimental type and enrollment-type fashion, or they'll provide a random methodology. What we're trying to do now, we randomize into multiple arms, plus we have to build, consider it as placeholders, and we have to account these studies could run for decades. Um, the overarching concept is these studies will continue to run until the biotech company effectively either gives up or cures that cancer. So these will always be adapted. So the flexibility and also the expansion capabilities of the trial have to almost be limitless. And we want to be cautious about that, too. So while we want to prepare these, you know, placeholder arms in the system, there's only so much that we can prepare for. Um, earlier I talked about preparing the randomization list to have enough entries for future possible experimental arms. But then we also have to consider, you know, we don't know about, we don't know anything yet about these new experimental arms that may come in. Um, how are the visits going to look like when they come in for, you know, their, their uh, subsequent assignment? So, you know, we can only prepare for it by perhaps adding entries or having the flexibility, like I said, to open uh, open or close or update the cap for a generic arm or placeholder arm. But behind the scene, when these new arms are still are introduced, there's still quite a few work to be done. So that's something to consider um, while designing, you know, these IRT and really setting the expectations of your of your client or your or your or your customers that. Um, you know, we, we want to prepare for these changes, but at the same time, we want a collaborative approach um, once the amendment is actually introduced. Yeah, I think that's the biggest point is that we're looking here. These studies are going to run for decades. So mm -hmm. you're having to build an IRT system where you're considering compounds that haven't even been discovered yet. And exactly as Carla mm -hmm. said earlier is that we're looking at what can we build in the system now for what we don't know is going to happen in 10 years' time. So it's the flexibility, but with constraint. It's a great yoga pose, isn't it? Flexibility with constraint. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if you think of it that way. So tension with flexibility. <laughs> All right. 
we have our RAN list that accounts for this. We've built in these placeholder arms. We have the possibility to add on new drugs, new molecules as they're, they're um, discovered or comparators, whatever the case may be. Do these trials allow for them the ability to move patients between those treatment arms? If, if you find, hey, this molecule is recent, it's actually much more effective. Let's discontinue the folks on this treatment arm right now, and we're going to move them over to here. Yeah, and that, that is, of course, almost the essence and beauty of this adaptive trial design. You're always providing an option, and if option A doesn't work, you've got option B and option C right up your sleeve ready to go. Because it's the ethical consideration. These are cancer patients. We can't just turn them around and say, well, that was nice, but surely that's been deemed ineffective. So arms can be closed. As soon as an assessment deems that treatment to be no longer viable, so the biotech company that maybe had 10 patients randomized, they look at their first 10 weeks and they say, you know what, we're just not going to go with this. We're not seeing the primary endpoints that we're expecting to see. So that's all well and good, but what do you do with those patients that were assigned to that treatment arm? We can't just let them go. So the genius of the adaptive design is that you'll always have a clear picture of not only what doesn't work, but you'll very clearly see what's the most successful drug that you have on that trial right now. So with the adaptive design, those patients in that arm that seems to have failed, you can move them to the most effective arm. So that simple adaptation is the equivalent of running like dozens of phase one trials. You're giving someone a chance and then you're giving them the best chance if that doesn't work. You're doing all of this in one protocol and one IRT platform. Right. So on top of that, you know, with it, again, we, um, Rob talked about randomization and making sure that they're still unbiased when uh, assigning these treatment arms within the system. But within the, I, you know, within the IRT design or within the platform, you also want to give the sites the flexibility to actually automatically enroll them to a specific arm that you think is going to be more beneficial for that patient. Um, provided, of course, we still want to qualify them if they, you know, they meet the eligibility criteria. Um, and once they do, then they can automatically just move into that arm. So it's just easier for the sites to manage um, what, whether they need to go through a randomization process or they need to be automatically enrolled, into, for example, a biopsy arm. Um, and, and again, provided that the eligibility criteria has been met. Uh, but one thing to think about is, again, if we think, if we find out in after of these assessments that uh, a combination or a treatment arm has not been very successful, the IRT has to be flexible enough to just close that off automatically and take it out of rotation. So when you actually do randomize these patients that are coming in, and there are more, there's more chances or probability for them to be enrolled or be randomized into these more effective um, combination of drugs. As we get this built up and we're moving patients, do you start to worry then about balancing treatments? I know in the IRT world, it's always about it's a question of balance. We always want to make sure treatments are balanced. We want to make sure we maintain the the proper dispensation. How does that affect with these type of adaptive trials? And again, this is where I keep saying it. This is where the adaptive uh, kind of trial design saves the day. So all patients are randomized into the available treatments in a balanced fashion that they are eligible for. So no patient will ever just stroll in and say, I want that one. So patients will all be assessed as to every available arm in the study. Are you eligible or ineligible? What we then have is that the patients could be maybe only eligible for two or three out of possibly 10 experimental arms. Does it randomize between them? 
patients that are then identified to move from that treatment to a better treatment, they're not considered in the randomized population. So at the end of the study, you will always have a balance of what patients have been randomized into. You may then have at the end of the study quite a large number of patients all on the one experimental arm, but you've still gathered enough clinical data to do a balanced analysis of every single arm in the study. Well, one thing to consider that too is that within the system, you know, the, the, the sponsors or these clinical uh, trial leads will still have the option to set the cap um, for each treatment arm level. So if you're very strict in actually maintaining that balance, um, again, there should be functionality within the system that will allow you to control that. Um, so that way, even if you're <clears throat> engaged into uh, enrolling or, shot, uh, or randomizing patients with one specific arm, then you know that there's still within the, there's still some control within the system, constraints within the system to avoid that from happening. So really, you're getting some good endpoint data out of this too. With it was they were randomized to this arm, but they had to be moved off because this was more applicable. Am I right in that assumption? Yeah, correct. And on top of that, you're also then seeing that when they've moved to the more beneficial arm, how has that then also provided the um, kind of the beneficial clinical data for the trial? So out of one patient, you're getting two sets of clinical data. You're proving why a certain treatment arm isn't viable. And really, for a sponsor, they can start to like really make some serious decisions that should we continue with that compound. But then you also get further information about what is showing as the best experimental option. So, yeah, you're running 10 phase one trials in one clinical platform, and you're getting the analysis straight away rather than waiting years. And, you know, Rabbi, I heard you, you said, you know, up to 10 arms. Is this scalable? Is this scalable up to 25, 30, 40 arms? And I said, but what we have to consider is about what is the clinical efficacy. You don't want a cancer patient to come up and then have to go through eligibility criteria and informed consent for 20 different arms. Are you going to start to almost muddy the water when you have that many different arms all working at once? So what we tend to see is when we look at the umbrella trials, we're really thinking five or six arms open at once. You might find in a specific region that a drug might not be available. It might not even be approved. So that drops it down to four or five arms. That patient might not be eligible under specific health conditions or lifestyle choices. They might not be uh, considered eligible for another one or two of the arms. So even though you have six arms open on the study, maybe that patient is eligible for either the standard of care or two experimental arms. So we start to see that that patient's uh, population is that slowly you start to build up the numbers and you get some significant data across four or five arms. It becomes very apparent then as to what arms work and which ones don't. And then you see that kind of revolutionary uh, kind of concept is that it's the almost one arm in, one arm out uh, type methodology. And that will just continue indefinitely. So if you want to put it out to 20 arms, you can do, but... Yeah. you will start to see it like you spread your data out. Now, towards the end of the trial, you may have assessed 50 to 60 different arms, but out of those 60 arms, you'll know the two or three that are the best. So it's almost the survival of the fittest for the experimental drugs. The best ones will hang around. The rest will just keep getting dropped off. And you know with IRT systems, you know, they, they typically say you can do whatever, whatever you want, really. So in terms of, yeah, can we accommodate 25 arms? Why not? Um, it's just a matter of, again, from kind of going back to our previous discussion of just making sure that you prepare for it initially. 
um, in terms of making sure that you have enough entries, you have enough placeholder arms within your iExpress, and really just planning ahead. Um, but in terms of the technicality and how it could be built within the system, really, it's, um, it's so much flexible. It's just a, a matter of deciding um, what kind of functionality you want to already build you know, in the beginning. All right, and Carla, I think uh, you, you said something that I want to follow up on. You said, you know, it's all about having the IRT system. You can do anything. Well, can the IRT really keep up with this type of, of workload and trial? I mean, typically you'd see in a, a phase one trial a very basic, straightforward IRT. Is this something that you that, that type of IRT could keep up with, or do you need something a little more robust? Well, we are able to do that already now. Um, we have some pharmaceutical companies that are already using this methodology, um, and I think you know, Rob can speak more to this, but we've been very successful in actually enrolling a lot of patients. Um, we can actually think of, you know, now that we've had this sort of wave one of, of, of treatment arms and now we're looking into more um, combination of drugs and we're able to implement that in the system. Um, so I don't think there has been any roadblocks in, in actually implementing that into a, a much larger scale. And going back to my point there that it's just something that we've already uh, planned for. Um, we knew that these studies are going to be um, going to run for decades and we're going to be anticipating all of these arms that are going to be added into the study later on. And so we're able to plan for it ahead and when it comes and it's, you know, it's just easier or more efficient for us to implement. Yeah, and I think, like, it all comes down to that big kind of, like, we call it the $64 million question. Can an IRT system keep up? So can you build one system to handle dynamic patient enrollment for an oncology trial across multiple changing arms that's both efficient and in, in indefinite length? So we keep saying it over and over again, partnership, trust, collaboration. This is what's needed between an IRT provider and your sponsor, so your biotech company, your clinical starter, whoever it is that's looking at this. Your decisions need to be at that umbrella level because this study is going to run for a long time. So all stakeholders on all sides, they need to be committed with that kind of equal level and equal balance of both enthusiasm and resources to make it happen. Like, we're about to build a study here that's going to run for decades, and you can have dozens of treatment arms. So choose the people that you combine with, like, very, very succinctly. When you're looking at who should I be working with, will they still be functioning in this methodology in 20 years' time? Because that's what you're looking at here. It's not a three-year uh, phase 1B or an 18-month trial where that company seems to be in board over or they've gone into administration. This is long-term, and we're talking oncology here as well, generally. So these are sick patients. We can't just uh, pack up and leave. So when we look at the IRT requirements, when we think about everything we do, this is going to be the time-consuming part of it. So it's finding that balance to keep it simple, but what are you going to build for a patient need in 10, 20 years' time? So make sure you have that solid IRT provider that's going to work in close collaboration and you address all the questions as to what you truly need and what are you going to build in for the future success of the study. Right. I actually would like to add on that too. Um, so Rob talked about making the simple, the, the, a simple system that would really um, you know, cater to what these protocols need. Um, some studies would be a little bit more fancy in terms of calculating how many drugs they need or how the business schedule looks like and things like that. But with clinical trial, uh, with a, an umbrella study, you have to anticipate that, not, you know, the complexity in the business schedule or 
However, actually assigning the drugs would not be applicable for all the treatment arms. So you do you, you know it's really a question or a partnership with your pharma company and understanding do we really need this calculation within the system? What is the main focus of why we're building an IRT? It's to randomize patients, it's to dispense medication. So you want to focus on those key items. Oh, you know, this specific arm needs to um, you know, collect more information in terms of PK sampling and things like that. But does the IRT need that? Do we really need to build that in within the system? So if you're able to build that very, you know, generic, um, simple but robust system from the beginning, then you're able to accommodate more combinations or uh, more treatment arms down the line. I heard the, the term, you know, partnering and making sure the stakeholders. When you're developing these type of trials, who are the stakeholders that need to be involved with the design? Who are the stakeholders that need to be the ones dictating the requirements? Oh, now this is where it becomes difficult, or what I'd say interesting for an umbrella trial is that everyone's involved, everyone has a voice. Because as we said, you're building this as, a, as your initial guess for what's happening over the next two decades. So you don't want to be five years down the track and think we should have listened to that biostatistician. So when you're talking about this from stakeholders, both from an IRT provider, from a COO, which is going to help manage the clinical trial, to the sponsor, which is providing the uh, chemical, uh, the chemical compounds which you're looking at, everyone can put in their two cents. We're thinking about system architects. We're talking about biostatisticians, project managers across all divisions, integrations and solution leads. Uh, we're talking about project coordination, recruitment, forecasting. So you almost need to have a representation from each of these roles in each of the different stakeholders. It can't just be a sponsor dictating. It has to be an IRT provider working with all the different vendors because it's that collaborative long-term vision. So it's entirely different. It might seem daunting, but once you can actually get your head around it and once you can move forward, it is really exciting what's possible. And I take it supply chain and the drug supply folks have a really large role in this as well. Of course, because you're trying to think if one of our trials or one of these experimental arms proves to be successful, say you put your first five arms uh, into the study live and 20 years down the track, experimental arm three is still the best one. You need to be considering at what point can we either drop drug manufacturing, forecasting, labeling as well, at the same time, can we also push it that that can be extended by 30 years? So it's that cross uh, kind of departmental uh, communication that we have to have. You're talking with clinical suppliers. You're talking with forecasting, procurement as well. Do we have enough of that compound for the next 20 years if it proves to be successful? And if we're seeing that more patients then are becoming more eligible for one specific arm, then, yeah, you need to plan for that. We need the drug supply managers to be planning for that ahead. Rob talked about the biostatistician, and really they're, you know, one of the main key players here. Well, everybody plays an equal role, but, you know, we want to make sure that the biostatistician is always involved in terms of how we generate um, a subject list or how we can actually randomize the patient. Because um, we can't, you know, say it enough that we have to be very dynamic um, or adaptive in terms of actually generating this list down the line. So, you know, when I, for example, I, as a design manager, um, I would want to speak to um, you know, the, not just the sponsors or not just the clinical trial lead, but I want to understand how the sites are going to be managed, how the, uh, the sites are going to be um, assigning the medication or, or managing their patients. So that way we can build a system in terms of understanding, um, okay, these are basically the important factors. These are going to make the sites have an easier time enrolling their patients within the system or entering the information. 
So that way, in terms of building that system, it's already robust enough for them. One of the things uh, I, I want to circle back on real quick is, you know, we talk about moving patients, right? How do you prevent a patient in a control arm from being transferred to a treatment arm after a few days if they're receiving a, a control drug and now it's all of a sudden we're going to move them to a different arm? Yeah, this, this is one of the hardest parts of not only an umbrella trial, but really for any clinical trial, especially when we're looking at oncology. Um, so... We always need to compare the new drug that's being trialed to the existing available options. So when a patient is being randomized onto the control arm, it's not that they're actually going to be receiving placebo. And that's what we want to look at and, and focus on when it comes to umbrella trials. So the control arm, if you think of it differently, that's going to be the currently available best standard of care. So for the umbrella trials, your, your control might be chemotherapy or even a combination of chemotherapy and a readily available commercial product, but they're still being treated. So as long as if we're just saying, here's a placebo and we hope all works out well for you, if the best commercially available treatment is not showing them any clinical benefits, so they're on the control arm and they're not improving or they're not actually seeing the reduction in the clinical output that we're hoping, then the patient can be then moved to the best performing experimental option. So it's about that kind of site understanding, the CRAs and the CRO understanding as well, that when a patient's randomized to control, it's not the kind of the end of, uh, well, we'll just shift them anyway. We still want to see the data. It might be the best option for them. Um, it's that underlying kind of ethical heartbeat that we have, that we say behind every umbrella trial, is that you need to do something for the patient is that we don't just put them on placebo, we don't tell them that we don't have an option, you need to do something for them. All right, so how do you stratify then patients when not all arms are going to be available to a given patient? How do you maintain the, the statistics on that and keep your data managers appeased and happy? So most of these um, protocols don't really have a true stratification factor you know, how we typically in some, you know, traditional clinical trial appro approach where you have a gender or region as a stratifying factor. So for umbrella studies, we usually, we, we use basically what's open within the system. So we stratify them based on what's open, um, when they say open, what treatment arms are open, and if they're actually eligible for that. So you could have five arms that are open at any given point in time, but the subject may only be eligible to three. So we stratify them based on what they're eligible for and what they're actually allowed to, you know, to be randomized to. And so because of that, we're able to just focus on what the, you know, what the true genetic mutation is and actually address, um, address that by giving them, you know, a treatment arm or assigning a treatment arm that's within um, their mutation. So for the most part, you know, there's really two processes there um, when we randomize patients. So at the beginning of the randomization process, we determine are you going to be randomized into a control arm or an experimental arm. So when we talk about experimental arm, these are the true combinations of drugs, so the investigational drugs that are actually being tested. And once we determine if you're in control, then that's it. Um, you will be receiving the standard of care. But if you've been randomized into an experimental arm, then we go through another process, and that's the one I talked about, where we want to make sure that you are actually eligible for all of these open arms. Regarding timelines, are there savings here when it comes to the actual timeline? We've talked about the savings that you get with putting it all together. We've talked about savings in quality. What about the timeline? Yeah, 
And I think this is where we're getting to the most important part and what everyone wants to hear is that what, what's in it for the biotech companies? What's in it for everyone else? Well, do you know what? Everyone benefits from this. There's huge savings in timeline. So with the new trial designs, even if you think the largest cancer centers, the largest research organizations or hospital clinics, they're only likely to enroll maybe one, perhaps two patients into any arms of a study. So this is because specific biomarkers in cancers are so unique. So if we consider this, if you have to run just that one trial, you could be waiting years to get meaningful clinical data. So now that we have this adaptive trial designed from an umbrella concept, it's that kind of welcome all approach. So from a recruitment respect, there's timeline savings everywhere. Is that you're going to be bringing in patients. It's just, do you have lung cancer? You do, in you come. So you're not looking for specific uh, kind of genetic mutations, as Carla said earlier. When we think about the IRT side of it, the timeline's really the savings are in the condensation of the multiple protocols. You don't have to build 10 different phase one trials. You can now build one platform that investigates all of these treatment arms together at the same time. And so that, that leads into the, the savings for the funding. So think of all the startup costs and the understanding for clinical trials, investigator meetings, um, site initiations and activations that you have to do for every one of those trials, they're all consolidated into one clinical platform. And I think kind of going back to basics as to why we even need to use an umbrella study and, and, and really the main focus of that, like I mentioned earlier, is just the, the ability to actually speed up the process and in terms of patient engagement. So there's a lot of savings in terms of uh, the timeline. You know, looking at this traditional clinical approach, it's, it's becoming less viable as we understand that these diseases and medical conditions are actually um, caused by different mutations. So the more granular definition of disease and medical conditions that we understand, typically in a, in, a, in a traditional sense of clinical trials, then you have to run more clinical trials for phase one, and then you're looking at, you know, phase two and so on. So it's just time-consuming. And the reason why these pharmaceutical companies are more lean towards the umbrella studies because they're now able to um, speed up the process in terms of recruiting, um, identifying and they're recruiting participants for more special or specific classification. So there's definitely a lot of positive pros there in terms of really bringing these drugs out in the market sooner. Yeah, and I think it's like, yeah, to kind of wrap it all together is kind of getting that drug out to market sooner, really what we're looking at here, the most important saving in timeline is that kind of life. Um, it's that industry concept. We're moving our clinical development forward at such a rapid pace that it's been time now. We've been, we've been actually trying to catch up to align our thinking with the same haste that the clinical development has shown. So patients will no longer have to jump from trial to trial. I'm going to go to a different clinic and see if they've got an option for me. And kind of shifting their hope uh, kind of in their last day. So we're giving them the best possible chance right now with this, just with this concept. So yes, we can look at timeline savings, cost savings, but when we think patient-centric, is you're bringing that cure and best possible treatment for that patient right away. Right, because you're testing the number of different combinations of drugs with, you know, the patients with really the same type of cancer or then, again, the umbrella, one umbrella of disease. So the disease family, and you know, you're able to determine which one works best right away to a specific therapy, and therefore, of course, really the end result is that we're able to get that drug out of the market to more patients. So what I'm hearing is you're essentially not only speeding it up, but you're increasing the population size that you have to choose from. Correct. The patient engagement. Correct. 
here's the converse then. Are there any types of studies that this umbrella would not work well with? Well, yeah, of course. That's generally, we think that uh, anything that we want to like rapidly assess and rapidly present data for multiple treatment options for a same kind of therapeutic area, we'd like to use the umbrella or the bucket or the basket concept. So if the clinical trial, like investigational therapeutic area you're looking at, doesn't provide that variety, or even if you don't have the range of kind of available clinical treatment options or combinations available, then this type of umbrella trial, it probably won't be suitable, is that we're not saying that this is going to be the game changer, is that there is still the place for the generic kind of active placebo when we're looking at potentially like Alzheimer's disease, when we're looking at Huntington's, when we're looking at uh, kind of neurological or immunotherapy uh, uh, concepts. For the likes of oncology, where we want to get that rapid turnaround, rapid treatment, because there's so many options available and there's so many biomarkers to assess, that's when you'd really want to use these umbrella trials. For those people listening out there, Rob, and I want to ask the question. They're going to make a decision to run something like this. What are the top things that you could recommend? And Carla, the same question to you. What are the top things you could recommend to them that they could do to really make this successful and make it seamless? To make it seamless, I think there has to be the expectations up front that you're making the best possible decisions for a patient population is let's not try and uh, have the mindset of we're going to nail the design straight out the bat and that's just going to sit there and work for the next 20 years. I wish we could come up with that concept. So everyone has to have the mindset that this is going to change. If you think for a clinical trial population how long it takes to get data for some of these arms, probably every 9 to 12 months you're going to drop an arm add a new treatment arm, and you're going to change the the way that that clinical trial runs. So that mindset, that's what you need to have in place to have that seamless progression. Don't get caught up on the, did we get this wrong? Have the mindset of, we made the best decision with what information was available to us at that time. And again, you know, typically when we talk about IRT, again, it's very flexible, right? We can accommodate, we can really do anything, but do we really want to do everything within the system? So kind of having that mindset in the beginning is that what, you know, kind of having that focus, what do we need the IRT for? What is the main purpose of the service or of the tool? It's to randomize patients. It's to determine well, how many drugs to dispense um, to the patients. How are we managing these drugs within the IHRS? So really just making sure that we don't get too fancy in terms of designing um, the IRT and collecting information that will not really matter or will not really enhance the process of randomizing the patients or assigning these medications. So sometimes we tend to want to collect everything within the IXRS, um, but again, it's just really taking a step back and, and focusing on what the real purpose of the system is. So that way, as you build more experimental arms, as you build more combination of drugs, you have that flexibility um, or that generic um, approach that could be applicable not just for the first two experimental arms, but also for the next 20 that's coming up in the future. One thing to think about really, it's not really more on the IRT, but just the partnership that we have with our sponsors. It's just really understanding what the plan is and what you can really plan ahead for the future, but just having that transparency uh, as to when these na- next wave of, of you know, combination of drugs are coming in so that way you can already prepare. Um, while we think about that already from the beginning of the study, again, there's no, there's only so much that we can prepare for. So that way, when it's actually, when the amendment comes through, 
you know, the system is ready, you already have a, a plan on how to implement these changes, whether it's just dropping the arm or adding new arms or, you know, just switching up a combination or dif defining a different eligibility criteria, all of that is sort of already planned ahead before the protocol is, is, is amended. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing, as you touched on it there, Carla, is that partnership. Is it, You're in this for the long haul. Um, we, we talk about this oncology, and it might seem like a flippant kind of throwaway comment, is that you're going to run these studies until the sponsor either runs out of experimental options or they've cured that cancer. But that, that, that's your two options when you run these type of trials. It's not going to be 18 months, well, that didn't work well, it's been lovely, contract end. But this is long term. So when you're thinking about the kind of sponsors that you use, the IRT provider that you use, the CRO you use, you have to also consider and be honest up front. Will they be up to the challenge of doing this for 10, 20 years? Because that's what your umbrella trials do. They're long-term continual assessment. So we talked about the timeline and getting the IRT up and running. What about the clinical development overall? Yeah, so this is where the big kind of, uh, the, the big interest comes in from the uh, kind of the, thera the therapeutic areas when we're talking about the sponsors, when we're talking about the pharmaceutical companies, the biotechs, this is their interest. So we all have heard of the kind of industry analysis estimates that uh, a novel drug bringing it to market, we're looking at about $3 billion. That's huge. When we think of it, then we cut that down further again that it's about 10 years from inception of that clinical compound to being a regulatory approved product. We also heard that one in 10 uh, clinical uh, trials fail, or one, only one in 10 uh, drugs, sorry, have a chance of making it past phase one. So we've got a 90% failure rate of any compound at phase one. So that success rate, when we think for, for oncology, it's even lower. So we've always been driven by this innovation. So it's remarkable when an industry starts to think, well, we're making breakthroughs in clinical operations. What can we do to make sure that we can use biomarkers effectively, we can drop bad leads sooner, and we can diversify our research efforts to make sure that we have like, this adaptive approach. So that's when we come in with the umbrella studies, is that these studies are going to run forever. So using this approach, you'll know what works today. You're not going to be investing that $3 billion getting to the phase two, phase three to go, ah, so close, didn't work. So the time and the revenue that the biotech companies can save, they're going to be able to reinvest that into other areas, other different approaches, which will bring us even closer to the cure that we need today. We're not waiting until tomorrow. Great discussion today. And I want to again thank Rob and Carla for the information and updates to what can be done to expedite trials. As Rob said, the $64 million question, can you build one system to be flexible enough to handle your study? And it goes back to the same question we've asked a few times throughout this series, and something that just keeps coming up, partnering, making sure there is buy-in, and ensuring you have support. Those are all questions that need to be asked on a regular basis. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Matt Lowry, and this is The Spotlight on IRT Podcast. You've been listening to The Spotlight on IRT Podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.